You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rusk. And we're here to give you the tools and knowledge to invest both your time and money better. If you're new, feel free to jump in with our Starter Pack series that aired in early 2022 or our Shares or ETF mini series. We've got plenty to share with you in today's episode, but if you want to catch us on socials, head to Rusk Australia on Insta and Twitter. I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta. And I'm Owen Rusk AU on Insta. Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Ryan, welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. Thanks. I want it's uh, great to be back. I'm surprised yeah. you had me back. I'm su- very surprised. And in <laughs> fact, uh, I, I was surprised when Kate said, hey, Ryan would be a good fit for this Uh for income stocks uh, episode. But uh, for folks that don't know, um, you're the director of research at The Motley Fool Australia. The Motley Fool is one of Australia's largest, if not the largest investment research providers for anyone to go and sign up and subscribe to an investing newsletter and get access to a premium part of the website. It's also free articles and news and things like that available at fool.com.au. What they may know or may not know is that we're also very close mates, um, you and I, and we started in the in this career together. Um, so we do apologize for any inside jokes that may come about as a result of this discussion. Um, Kate has kind of let, let me loose to just chat with you, so it's great. But for folks who aren't familiar, mate, I think one of the good things to start with is like even though your title says Director of Research at The Motley Fool, which means you have certain uh, responsibilities for the investing team, a lot of people will be unfamiliar with the role of an analyst. So can you just tell us what does an analyst do? Like if they see an investment analyst in the news or hear them, what is it that you actually do? Yeah, you're right, Owen. So I do wear uh, a few different hats. Uh, obviously, director of research, as you mentioned, I'm also a portfolio manager and an analyst. So I guess just starting from from scratch with the analyst side of things, what we're really doing is just looking at a business. We're looking at its financial statements. 
uh, its history, its story, what we expect it to, to continue doing from here. Uh, and obviously, when it comes to investing, what we're really focused on is the future. But I think sometimes to learn about the future or to, to sort of think about the future, you also need to know the past. Mm. And I suppose that's where the analyst side of things comes in. Just looking at trends, looking at numbers, looking at the story, as I mentioned. Yep. Okay. So basically, you're looking at these businesses, the industries, and you're trying to say, if you were to walk down the street um, and you would say, that company looks like a better company than the other one next to it because of a few different reasons. And you can do that by obviously going and visiting the company, but you can also speak with management, go through the annual reports to see actually what runs are on the board, so to speak. So uh, I wanted to ask you a hypothetical question as well, just to kind of mm -hmm. break the ice. If you weren't an analyst, uh, day to day and you weren't researching companies and doing all that type of thing, what do you reckon you'd be doing? I, I want to get your th your two cents on this and I'll, I'll answer your question in one sec. You've known me for a very long time. If I wasn't an analyst, what do you reckon I'd be doing? Well, I know that you, and you've spoken about this in the past, you said that you would have ended up in healthcare um, because you started studying um, health uh, out of school. But I don't know. You also spent some time doing some other things, which is quite interesting to me. Um, and you're really <laughs> interested in fitness. Um, so I would maybe say maybe something health related or sports related. Um, so maybe like uh, either like a fitness instructor, like a PE teacher or something like that, or maybe even, um, I don't know, maybe that, that's probably what I'd go with. Yeah. Something like that. Cause I think you're really passionate. Yeah, that's, about that stuff. that's a, that's a pretty good guess. That'd probably be the next best thing. Uh, okay. I've actually said if I ever won Tats Lotto and I, I just didn't have to work at all, uh, had, the, had the you know run of the mill to do whatever I wanted, I'd probably run like a doggy daycare center. Oh, you love animals, the, yeah. I love animals. The The problem is uh, I'm a bit of a pushover when it comes to animals and I think they would run the roost over me. So I don't think I'd be a very good <laughs> dog sitter at all, but that, okay. that's sort of like a pipe dream. Okay, well noted then. I won't take my dogs down to you. But if yes, I do no. need someone to take care of them, I've, I've got a a resource. Um, okay. So I'm going to ask you in a minute about what you look for when you look at companies and shares to invest in. But before we get to that, I think I'd just be, be important for me to, to clarify what is uh, dividend income. So when we talk about investing in shares or ETFs for that matter, um, you can benefit in one of two ways. You can benefit from the long-term growth of that investment. So the, the share price going up over time. Another way to benefit is from the income that you receive because as a shareholder, you effectively own part of a company. It would make sense that if the company produces extra profits and it wants to return some of those profits to you in the form of cash, you can do that. Uh, they can do that. The board of directors can say, we're going to pay a dividend. And as a shareholder, you will receive a dividend payment. At first, this might seem like really token amounts of money. So it might be like you know, four or five dollars in a dividend hitting your bank account if you set it up so it goes to a particular bank account or maybe it goes into your brokerage account. You can set all those things of where the money goes, by the way, by going to your share registry, that company that sends you um, all of the dividend information in the mail. You can say, I just want my dividends to go into my bank account. Um, but over time, what happens is dividends begin to get serious and very serious, I would say, when your portfolio starts to hit maybe $100,000. Because if you can maybe get a 3 or 4% dividend yield on your entire portfolio, um, it starts to become three or four thousand dollars, which is serious. Mm. And then you keep going towards retirement, and all of a sudden you've got five hundred thousand or a million dollars, and it gets really powerful, like seriously powerful. And in the long run as well, you've got com compounding working on your side too, right? 
Yeah. So the portfolio mm-hmm. grows while you're also earning income. And that's one of the special yep. things about the share market as opposed to, say, property, where a lot of that just typically goes to paying off the interest. And to be honest, properties don't yield as much as a good portfolio of shares do. There's one final benefit, which we don't have to go into detail today because we've done other things on it. But you can also, in Australia, from Australian companies, you can also earn something called franking credits. You can look that up. Uh, We've done episodes on that in the past. But basically, it's just a tax credit stored at the ATO. Uh, and you collect that in effect when you do your tax return. And that can boost the dividend, which we'll talk about today, from say 3% to 4% or from 6% to 8% if it pays franking credits. And you will know that because the company will say the dividend is fully franked. Um, I think we'll talk about some companies today that have those. Um, there are some rules and eligibility requirements, but it's very unique to only Australian companies and only Australian companies that pay tax in Australia. Um, now, with that said, I want to just quickly take a moment before we get into the four companies, Ryan, when you're investing in shares, and I know we don't have a lot of time, you spend your entire career doing this, what are you looking for when you make an investment or before you make an investment? I think for the most part, what I really look for is growth and the the, the ability, I guess, for a company to continue compounding uh, over a long time. And what I mean by that is I suppose when you think about a business, a lot of the way, a lot of analysts, the way they sort of forecast is that okay, this business is going to grow at ten percent this year, and then eight percent the next year, and then six percent and four percent the following year, and so on. And I think that's that's a pretty reasonable way to look at it. But there are opportunities on the market that I think have that ability to sustain higher growth rates for much longer. You know, you look at a company like Amazon, and uh, you know its compounding rate. It has just grown over the decades at you know something like twenty percent per annum. If you were to go back twenty years, no no analyst in their right mind would have forecast that to happen. You know, it it, it just doesn't happen. Mm. But you know, if you if you can sort of look at those long term opportunities and just forecast, be able to forecast that growth relatively confidently. You know, by maybe um, maybe getting a fair indication that this industry has a long runway of growth. You know, there's strong tailwinds behind these businesses. Those are the sort of opportunities that I really like. Mm. Uh, I think on top of that, though, what you really need to look for is a strong balance sheet. You know, cash flow, cash flow potential as well, uh, aligned management, those sort of factors too. Yeah, cool. I like that. And I like Amazon mm. as an example because everyone knows Amazon, but when Amazon was small, no one knew it would grow into the behemoth that it did. But it did require all those things you said: good management, a strong balance sheet growth and cash flow, but it also required a really interesting industry, which was the internet. You know, it basically rode this huge wave of the internet coming through and that helped it grow at exponential rates for a very long period of time. By the way, when we mean exponential, what we mean is we don't mean like one year it goes from 10% to 1,000% in growth. We mean if it can just grow at 10% every year, or in this case, 20% every year, 20% of five years times sales is a lot more than 20% of today's sales. And that's one of the key benefits of finding these growth companies. Okay. But today we're focusing on income. And one of the things in the share market is you can have both. You can have growth and income, which is what makes it unique. Um, and we're going to go through uh, two companies and these are we've got two, two companies each, so four in total. These are only examples. But what we want you to do is basically to take this and go away and look at these companies or use some of the ideas that we bring to the table as a way to think, well, maybe I can go and discover more about that company that Ryan spoke about or 
I like the one that Owen spoke about, but I'm not ready to invest. I just want to learn about it. And so we'll say how you can do that. You can go to the annual reports on the company's website and that sort of stuff. But Ryan, maybe we'll go, I go, you go. Um, so maybe I'll just go first with a very basic one, um, which is a company that people would think is that's very unusual. So the company that I'm going to talk about is Cochlear. Now, some people will know that um, many people throughout the world um, have hearing difficulties. So they struggle to hear this podcast. So we do subtitles or we do captions. Um, they struggle to communicate effectively with people who don't understand sign language or things like this in the real world. And so what people can do is they can go to cochlea or to an audiologist and they can get a referral to have a cochlear implant installed. Now, this is an actual implant and it involves a medical procedure. And what happens is at the end of the day, the product that gets basically installed, I don't want to be crude about it, but it gets installed in your head is a cochlear implant. This is a, a device that relies you know, on an electrical circuit. It takes um, you know, really, really poor hearing and turns it into something that is understandable for most people. And the surgery and the process can take months and typically does take months before you're back to uh, fighting fit and you've got your balance and these types of things. Now, these are expensive devices. We're talking $20,000 or so. And what happens is they require surgeons to be trained in the way that cochlear requires to be installed effectively. The business itself started in the 1980s um, and it's the world leader today. Uh, it has uh, thousands of team members right around the world and it makes its money in three ways. One, by selling the actual product, the implant. The other one, through accessories and upgrades. And the final thing is through bone conduction devices, which is slightly different. But basically, it's moving into this field where it can sell kind of components and accessories alongside the device. Now, this is kind of the overview of it, but you can probably already imagine that it, there are some levers that are risky here. One is people need to be able to afford it, so they have to get funding. It's typically through private health, and those rules can change, particularly in places like the United States um, or here in Australia through things like Medicare. Uh, it also requires people to have enough money to take time off work and to get the surgery and these types of things. It requires surgeons to install them. So there are plenty of risks with this business, but it is one of those things, I think, where if you're going to get something installed in your head, you want it to be a recognizable brand that invests in itself and invests hundreds of millions of dollars back into its business every year. And at the moment, it pays a 1.2% dividend. So that's just the dividend payment that you get over a year divided by the share price. So it gives you a yield. Uh, and that's 1.2%, Ryan. It's not a huge dividend yield, but that's my first company, which is Cochlear. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one, mate. And I, I, I'm actually going to bring a similar one uh, with a very similar yield as well. And I suppose it's, it's probably worth noting as well that, you know, when it comes to investing, we often group things in, you know, between growth and value or income and growth. I think sometimes it's important to, to not be so binary. I think it's important to, to recognize that, you know, okay, this company has a, a smaller yield, but it also has growth potential. Mm. You know, one of the reasons why is that uh, the, the company that I'm going to talk about in a moment is ResMed, and uh, it ha it pays out about 30% of its earnings as a dividend. The other 70% is reinvested back into the business, mm -hmm. and you know that goes towards research and development, sales and marketing, and things like that. Um, so, in terms of what ResMed does, though, it develops, manufactures, and distributes hardware uh, solutions and also software as well um, to help diagnose 
uh, treat and also manage respiratory uh, disorders. So in particular, I'm talking about obstructive sleep apnea, uh, which is basically a condition where uh, the patient is asleep and their airways close. That means that they stop breathing, they don't get a very high quality sleep, they're constantly waking up and it can cause to a, it can lead to a whole bunch of other uh, different different conditions as well. So uh, heart disease, strokes, it's a pretty serious disorder when you really step back and think about it. Mm. Uh, in terms of when it started, it was actually started in 1989 by uh, Dr. Peter Farrell. And inter- interestingly, sorry, interestingly enough, it's actually his son, uh, Mike, that now runs the business. Um, hmm. So it's it's not founder-led, but it's sort of founder-led, like family-led, I, yep. I suppose. Um, anyway, the business was essentially started uh, to acquire the rights to certain technologies relating to CPAP technology. CPAP means continuous positive airway pressure. It's essentially a device that pumps air into the throat uh, at night to keep the airways open uh, and therefore helping to treat sleep apnea and help to, to reduce the risk of all these other d- disorders and diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, very similar, th- there are a lot of similarities, I suppose, to what you were just describing with cochlear as well, in terms of how it actually generates income. Although these devices aren't actually being implanted in a person, they do sell hardware, so the actual CPAP device. That accounts for, we'll say, 50% of the company's overall sales. Uh, another 40% or thereabouts actually comes from accessories, so things like masks, straps, you know, things that wear down. But essentially, once you've actually got a CPAP machine, you you sort of need these accessories to keep it working and to keep it functioning. So in a sense, that becomes, you know, essentially a recurring revenue stream for ResMed. Uh, and then the remainder of group sales, we'll say 10% or thereabouts, is actually software solutions. And that's sort of the direction that this business is going. It's sort of decentralizing that health, bringing it outside of the hospital into the person's home, you know, that, that can help with, um, you know, adherence to treatment, which, as you mentioned as well, is important for things like insurance, making sure that, you know, you, you are following the, the treatment as you should be. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of competitors, uh, this company isn't the only one in the market. There are other competitors like Philips and also Fisher and Paykel that do similar, similar offerings. Uh, one of the reasons, though, that I do like ResMed and one of the reasons that we recommended it at the Multi Full is that uh, Philips was actually engaged in a big recall uh, of their devices for, for, for safety concerns. That is still ongoing, although it is getting towards the end of that, that period uh, of the recall. But in my mind, I think that gives ResMed a good opportunity to continue grabbing market share over time. Um, so that, that's one of the real reasons that I like it. Uh, I will mention one risk here as well, because I think another competitor is essentially not not a company that's necessarily bringing out you know rival devices. It's, it's actually alternate treatments. Now, unless you've been living under a rock, you would have heard of Ozempic, uh, which is a form of semaglutide, and essentially that's a weight loss management drug. Uh, it, it wasn't actually intended as a weight loss management drug. It was actually first intended uh, for diabetes treatment, but has turned into weight loss. Mm. Now, there are associations between obesity and being overweight and obstructive sleep apnea. So there's the risk, of course, that as as people, you know, as obesity rates decrease, that more people could be on, uh, could, could, could rely on CPAP machines less, which is a risk for ResMed. I personally think that risk is overblown and I know uh, you, you sort of feel the same way there, but it is a risk to consider. Mm. Um, the, the last thing I'll mention there as well is obviously the dividend. We're talking about income stocks, so I, I, it would be... Uh, it would be redundant to not talk about the dividend. 
Um, it's a it's a similar yield to what you mentioned with cochlear. I think it's about one point two or one point three percent. Over the last uh, year, they've paid out a dollar ninety two per share in US dollars because this is actually a US based company. They've also got ASX listed uh, shares, which trade as CDIs, um, uh, chest depository instruments, basically, uh, and and that equates to about one point three percent dividend. Mm-hmm. Cool. I like it. So my understanding, and you told me about this, is so we've got cochlear that does implantable devices in your mm-hmm. head for hearing and ResMed is like the masks and the humidifiers and the things that pump air into while you sleep and help you uh, get sleep. Um, so you've identified one of the potential risks is Ozempic because a lot of people that have issues with breathing are overweight. Uh, and so if it's not necessarily a competitor, it's more so that it could change the demand for the product in the future. Like you might not need as many masks or humidifiers uh, if you've already lost the weight and you don't suffer as badly from sleep apnea. What was interesting about this is um, when I was doing some reading on ResMed recently and Ozempic was this idea that it actually they could actually coexist. You know, you might oh, have- absolutely, they could, yeah. Yeah, you might have people using Ozempic for weight management, but still having sleep apnea uh, longer term. So- um, it may actually be beneficial in bringing more people into the hospital to get treatment or to get referrals for different services and products. But it's definitely something to watch, as you said. And correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, but Philips, one of the competitors in this space, the problem that they had was the masks were kind of leaving some type of residue. Is that correct? It wasn't the masks itself. I, I believe it was actually the machines. And there was like a foam in the in those machines. And when it was operating, that foam would actually break down come through the, the, the tubes basically and the people would the, the patient would essentially breathe that in. Um, the, the, the FDA, they're basically do, sorry over in the, the states, the regulators, they, they are still conducting tests. It's probably not looking like it was as dangerous as what it could have been, but my take is you know when, when you' when you're using technology to help you breathe better and you know using it for, for medical treatment, you want to make sure that you're being looked after. Mm. And, you know, when, when you've had a recall process, it's basically been going on for two, two or three years now. Mm. It's, it's a bit of a knock on your reputation, right? Mm. I, if I was, if I was a, a sleep apnea patient and I needed to get a new device, knowing what I know about Philips and their devices and their struggles over the past couple of years, I would certainly be inclined to say, no, nope, I'm just going to go for the best. I know ResMed has good quality products that they haven't had you know, these issues with, I'm going to get one of those. It's kind of one of those things, and they're both healthcare companies, these two companies we mm. talked about. It's like one of those things where you don't want to be cheap. Like there are certain things like where you could maybe substitute your your bread uh, every day or maybe you, um, you go and buy the cheap hammer from Bunnings Warehouse instead of the more expensive one. Um, but when it comes to your health, uh, it's really important to, to – to get the right treatment, obviously. And um, that's why the healthcare companies tend to be defensive businesses because they tend to be things that people don't want to cheap out on. But also it tends to mean that they tend to grow slower one year to the next versus say in Amazon, which you spoke about before. But over the long term, if they just steadily grow, that's where you get that compound you talked about. Okay, so I'm going to switch gears completely and go to a company called Macquarie. This is Macquarie Group in Australia. It trades on the symbol uh, MQG, Macquarie Group. Um, when I was talking to my Uber driver about this company the other day, he said he was a data scientist and he wanted to get work. I said, well, Macquarie is a really interesting business. Now, he thought I was talking about Macquarie University, which is fair enough. It's a massive university, but this is actually bigger than the university. This is the, the bank, Macquarie Group. Uh, so 
Macquarie, some of you will know from signs or advertising, its logo looks like a silver donut, like a circle, um, and it operates right around Australia, but it also operates around the world. Now, when I say it's a bank, it's a bank with a little bit of difference. Macquarie actually doesn't just specialize in home loans and savings accounts like most people would be familiar. And if those are what you're familiar with, you'd probably know that a bank makes money by charging you interest. It doesn't keep all of that interest. Obviously, it needs to get that money that it lends you from somewhere. So it has to pay interest back to the depositors. Uh, but that's it basically just makes a very small profit margin on the lending that it does. And its savings accounts might have fees or those types of things. Now, in Australia, Macquarie is one of the fastest growing in this side of the business. We call it retail banking, which is like where people just walk up, just like a retail store, and they can open a bank account. Um, but Historically, that's not been its most profitable business. Macquarie actually makes most of its money from things like uh, helping companies manage their currency, helping companies uh, sell their iron ore or their resources overseas, or commodities trading, or helping companies by managing their assets. So if it's like an infrastructure, so say someone owns a wind farm, Macquarie can organize the loan that you need to do that wind farm, but it can also oversee the, the development of that and it can manage those assets longer term as well. So it's kind of like this is like what we call an investment bank. It kind of helps you do everything that might be transaction related, it might be money management, those types of things. The thi thing is Macquarie started uh, as a totally different business well over 100 years ago. Uh, it started in Circular Quay in Sydney. For those of you familiar, that's where the Sydney uh, Opera House is. Uh, and actually what had happened, it wasn't until the 1980s that it started, it applied for its banking license and started to become known as Macquarie Bank. Um, and obviously that's been hugely successful. And over time it's grown and grown and grown, but it was also in the 1980s, I was reading just before this, Ryan, that it actually established a risk management framework. And it can credit the 1980s management team for this, but today Macquarie has gone over 50 years recording a profit. So meaning every single year for 50 years in a row, it's recorded a profit. That has enabled it to continue to pay dividends. That has enabled it to uh, continue to grow and reinvest in its business. Now, we should add here that not every company reports a profit every year, like sometimes there are bad years, but that's pretty impressive when you consider that some of Macquarie's competitors completely went bust during the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, and it's kept growing uh, over that period and changed its business to focus more on banking, like retail banking, but also maintaining its investment banking operation. So Macquarie Group, it's a big company in Australia, and so it's a bit more mature than some of the other businesses you will find. It's already included in many of your ETFs, if you own an ASX 200 ETF or something like that, but its dividend yield on last year's dividend payment is 4% or thereabouts. It only has partial franking credits because it makes a lot of its money overseas, but 4% is a pretty good yield if the business can continue to grow that dividend over time. So that's my second one, mate. My final one is Macquarie Group. What have you got for us? What, what are they, they call it the millionaire's factory, don't they? Yes, I didn't touch on that, yes. So um, one of its key competitive strengths is uh, that it effectively pays really good salaries. And for those of you that don't mm -hmm. know, investment bankers can make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in bonuses. And so what that means is that it attracts the best software engineers, it attracts, mm. attracts the best accountants, the best bankers, the best marketing people. And so they call it a millionaire factory because the employees can get rich because they're super highly talented. And that's actually its competitive advantage, its ability to retain really good people and let them do wonderful work over a long period of time. Um, 
And conversely, that's actually probably one of its weak, potential risks is that it can't maintain that standard or it loses its reputation over time. Or indeed, you know, something does go wrong um, with its risk management framework. So that's Macquarie, mate. Yeah, Millionaire's Factory is what they call it. Get a job at Macquarie. Okay, so I'm going to use that as a bit of a segue. Uh, so when I was going for my mortgage, uh, what is that, four or five years ago now, I actually went to a mortgage broker. Uh, we, we, we sort of needed a, a little bit more of a complex uh, mortgage arrangement, I suppose, and he got us onto Macquarie Group. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been very, very happy with Macquarie Group. Uh, as you said, obviously a retail, retail uh, client, but very, very happy with Macquarie Group and I would be very reluctant to change. Now, how, how that's a sort of a segue into my second pick. My second pick is Steadfast and mm-hmm. Steadfast trades on the ASX under the tick code SDF. And uh, Steadfast is Australia's largest broker of general insurance products. So it's not a mortgage broker like I went to for mortgage uh, for, for my mortgage, but mm-hmm. instead a uh, for, for general insurance. Now, what what a mortgage broker does is it essentially connects customers with the appropriate insurance businesses and vice versa. So it's important for both parties. Uh, the person seeking insurance they want to obviously insure against risk. The insurance provider wants a distribution channel. They want to get their brand out in front of as many people as they can and they can use a broker to do that. The important thing about a a broker is that they don't actually bear the underlying insurance risk. As I said, they're just connecting the the insurance seeker with the insurance provider. Insurance brokerage is typically free for the customer. So as it is with, uh, with, with when I was looking for a mortgage, it's a free service. But essentially, the mortgage broker itself, or the, the insurance broker in this case, uh, they essentially get fees or commissions um, as an ongoing you know, stream of income. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a very sticky relationship with the customer because it's also very relational, uh, relational in nature. Now, what Steadfast does, and you might, you might be wondering why would anyone sort of need this? And I think the answer to that is if you were going for, say, um, home insurance or car insurance, that's a pretty standardized product. It's pretty, you know, pretty much everyone in the market is looking for the same thing. But when it comes to businesses and particularly small and medium-sized businesses, as Steadfast typically focuses on, the needs can be quite complex. So, no, it's, it's not often that two businesses will need the exact same insurance for the exact same issues. You know, you want to you want to make sure that you're insured mm. appropriately, that the wording of the policies is done properly. So often, small and medium sized businesses will go to a broker like Steadfast to make sure that they're getting the right product for them. Uh, in terms of Steadfast history, it, it actually started in 1996. It had 43 brokerages at that point. Hmm. It's now got 426. So it's grown by nearly 10 times since then. Uh, It doesn't own all of those outright. It has uh, an equity interest in 68 of those. The remaining uh, brokerages basically become part of its network. And what that means is uh, those brokerage firms get access to uh, steadfast customers, to its insurance, uh, sorry, to its insurance partners, uh, to its technology. So again, as I mentioned, making sure that the wording Mm. of policies is correct, uh, that they can compare policies well and get the best outcome for the patient uh, for, the, for the for the patient there you go back to healthcare for the, for the customer um so it's it's a growing network of of brokerage firms um they they, they actually uh write about 11.6 billion dollars worth of premiums through its uh through, through each platform every year so it's a it's a huge platform 
and as I said, collects commissions, fees, and dividends from its brokerages along the way. Um, so it becomes quite a cash generative business, and that does allow it to pay out a dividend. Uh, so currently, it's got a 2.7% yield. That is fully <laughs> frank. So that takes it up to about 3.9% uh, in total. But as you mentioned as well with, with Macquarie, it's got a really good history of growing its earnings, growing its dividend as well. And, you know, it is an, an acquisitive model, which basically means that uh, a lot of its cash is going towards inc increasing or expanding its own network. So it's not paying all of that, uh, all of that profit out as dividends. But I believe over time, it really has that, that capacity to probably increase how much it is paying. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that I like it for the long term. Can you, okay, so can you maybe tell us, this is steadfast, SDF is the symbol, the ticket symbol. Mm -hmm. What are some of the risks that would apply to it then? Yeah, so look, I think there's probably a couple of risks here. One of them uh, is regulatory change. So there is the risk, of course, that, um, you know, they, they, the, the regulators basically change the way that mortgage, broking, uh, mortgage and insurance broking is done. Uh, it may make it so that the customer has to actually pay for that. It may crack down on commissions. Um, I don't think that's too much of a risk. I, I think the, the risk has probably passed. Um, I, I think it, it's pretty clear the benefits to both parties that brokerage has. Uh, and so I think Steadfast has done a pretty good job of campaigning in favour of that. So I don't, I don't see that as being a huge risk but it is certainly one to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. uh, I also mentioned there, though, that acquisitions are an important part of its uh, of its growth model. They actually just recently uh, made, they, they recently raised quite a bit of capital to go after a, another business called Shore Insurance, I think it was called, or Shore Capital. Um, they do a lot of these types of acquisitions. Now, acquisitions can be quite a risky growth uh, approach. I think when it comes to Steadfast, they've got a good history of actually allocating capital and to, to making these acquisitions work. So I'm not too concerned about that. Uh, and, and it is actually one of the reasons that I think it will continue to grow over time. But it is a risk that that may you know, that, that may be worth watching. I think I think when it comes to acquisitions, and as you know this, there's the risk of integrating well, poor integration into the core business. So if the, for instance, if the uh, cultures don't match up or if, they, if they're if they sort of clashing, that can be a real risk. There's also the risk that they may overpay for a business. So I think that's probably a key risk mm. there too. Mm, that's good. So basically, steadfast for people that are trying to think about what this actually is, is it's like if you, were to, if you were a business, like say the RAS Group, we are a business, and if we wanted insurance, we probably don't just go to the website of the you know, whoever and get like QBE and get the insurance. We could probably do that, but what would be better is we'd go to a broker who can handle all the legal jargon because it is very legally intensive. And though that broker may be part of the steadfast network and use their software and use their technology and tools to get me a quote and get me the right quote and make sure it's all ship shape. Um, so these businesses like you said, can be kind of really profitable at scale. So just to confirm our four companies, so I started off with Cochlear, which trades under the ticker symbol COH. It has a yield of about 1.2%. It's in healthcare, does the implantable devices. You went with ResMed, RMD is the ticker symbol. What was the dividend yield roughly on that? We don't have to be specific. Uh, it's about 1.3% or thereabouts, so okay. pretty much the same as Cochlear's. Yep, so 1.3%. I then went with Macquarie, which is the bank, 4% uh, or so is a dividend yield, and Steadfast was the final one, SDF, 25 2.7%, something like 2. that. 2.7. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
So the key thing to everyone to remember from this is investing can be risky, but over the long term, what you want to focus on is the businesses, which is why we spent nearly all of our time talking about the businesses behind these companies so you can go and research them. Some people might be thinking, well, a 1% dividend yield isn't that high, 2% isn't that high. You said you know, this is, you could get bigger dividend yields. And you can go out there and you can find companies with bigger dividend yields, but it can be quite risky if you put the yield before the business. Because what you're getting when you invest in shares is you're getting the future potential of a company, not the past. And dividend yield calculates typically based on past dividend payments. And this is the key insight a lot of people miss, is if you find a company that sure may pay a small dividend today, but you own it, in 10 years' time, the dividend yield based on your investment 10 years ago, i.e. today, is actually incredibly compelling. And that's the thing that's important is you buy today and the dividend yield may be 1% of your current purchase price. But in five or 10 years, you're getting annual dividends that have grown because the company has grown that far exceed the dividend payment today. And that's one of the key insights to long-term investing in the share market is that you lock in your price today, but you get the future growth. So put the company before the dividend yield and before all those trading strategies and all that, find the great businesses of tomorrow today. Um, people can find uh, out, sorry, Ryan, you are going to say something? Uh, I was going to say, I've heard of instances where people have invested in a business maybe 10, 15 years ago, and the dividends that, that they're now receiving are actually more than the, the initial investment amount that they paid. Mm. So that's a, a, that, that really goes to your point. It's a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal effort to find those businesses, but it is possible. Yeah. And so those are the things. And it doesn't really matter how you invest, if it's ETFs or individual shares in this instance, you get that long-term compounding effect. So if you only get your $4 dividend today and you're like, oh, these guys came on the podcast and talked about dividends. Yeah, but in five years or 10 years, if you keep contributing, you keep buying these types of businesses and whatever, that's where it becomes truly life-changing. And that's the passive income that people talk about. So stick with it. Keep funding your account. Keep putting money in and finding these types of things. Um, I, 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 I've heard of people, Ryan, and you've heard of them too, who find these companies and in 10 or 20 years, they retire because they've got enough of this. And talk to your grandparents or your parents about Commonwealth Bank or CSL or BHP mm. or all these types of businesses. Um, and it's a wonderful thing. So, Ryan, people can find out more about you at fool.com.au. It's very easy to remember. I love that. Um, they can also get a free newsletter. They can also see the free articles on the full website. But you're also working on some of the premium services, these like the memberships that people have to buy. What are the names of the services that you work on in particular? So I work on Motley Fool Pro. That's no longer open to new members. However, we have recently opened uh, a new service that I also run uh, called North Star. Uh, currently closed to new members, but I believe it will reopen maybe in January or February to, to new members. So uh, really excited about that. And um, yeah, cool. would, would love to have anyone along. Yeah, cool. So that's at fool.com.au, Northstar. You heard it here first, folks. Um, we'll keep going with our summer series and there'll be more to come, uh, but I'm really glad we got to do this, mate. So thanks, uh, thanks heaps for taking the time to join me. Thank you very much, Owen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. We hope you learned something new and were able to take one thing away from this episode. If you're keen to learn more, head on over to Rask Education and take one of our free money and investing courses. You could even become a Rask Core member for less than your Netflix subscription each month. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes in your inbox every week.
Plus, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and send any questions our way via the link in the description. And before we go on, did this podcast contain personal financial advice just for me? Absolutely not, Kate. Our podcast actually contains general financial information only. What that means is the information does not take into account your financial needs, goals, objectives, or even your situation. So because of that, it's important that you consider if the information is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on it. If that all sounds a bit confusing or you're still working out what your needs are, it's a great idea to consult a licensed and trusted financial planner. And don't forget to do your own research. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no-obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.